0: Welcome to Podcast by Brodies. My name is David Lee and this is the second episode in the Case Files podcast series. In the Case Files, we look back at notable court cases from the last 150 years and discover how Brodies lawyers through the ages have played their part in key legal moments. In each episode, we talk to Brodies modern day legal experts to discover how their predecessors helped shape the way the law is applied today. So welcome to episode 2 of the Case Files on His Majesty's service. I'm joined by two members of Brodie's advocacy team, partner Tony Jones QC and associate Ross Mitchell, who are both solicitor advocates as we head back 100 years to the early 1920s. The roots of the case, Gatti versus Maclean, actually stretch back a decade earlier, linking together military service, a Scottish island estate and unpaid debts. It has an ensemble cast with connections to a war poet, musical entertainer, children's author, a world famous adventurer and many more. So Tony Jones first of all tell us what we know about the colourful parties in this case. Let's start with McLean. What do we know about him?
1: Well um, McLean certainly has a Colorful and somewhat might say tragic um, uh, part to play in this in that, um, Kenneth Maclean, or as he was known in full, Kenneth Douglas Lauren Maclean of Loch Buey, ultimately military cross, having earned that in the first war, uh, was the 24th Baron Moy, um, of Moy Castle, uh, on, um, the island of, uh, Arran. And, um, he was chief of the clan Maclean and, um, Unfortunately for him, um, his father seemed to have spent most of the family money, which uh, leads on to the background to the case, uh, and he ended up on hard times. And uh, Kenneth uh, McLean um, ultimately... um, went on before the first war to try and earn money going on the stage as a comedic scottish act telling jokes uh, and playing the bagpipes and that might seem extraordinary to us um, sitting here in 2021 but uh, there was precedent for that those of you that are old enough know sir harry lauder made a very fine living uh, out of doing exactly that Uh, and evidently kenneth uh, McLean thought that he would do the same and even went to America to, to apply his trade as a, as a comedic actor.
0: Okay, so uh, obviously MacLean is uh, is touring around trying to make his living uh, as, as, as a music hall entertainer. Uh, as you say, this is very much hard times. So I, th- I believe his family had been there for centuries on the island.
1: Well, they had been there for centuries. They'd been there for, uh, by this time, about 500 years. And um, being of the clan MacLean. Apparently, they had been gifted the, the land or given granted the land um, for fighting for one of the Scottish kings back in the 1300s. So they'd been there a long time. And indeed, uh, he had a castle, Moy Castle, which still exists today, although um, it's uh, perhaps not in the state that it was 500 years ago.
0: OK. And so what do we know about uh, Maclean's protagonist here, uh, Sir Stephen Gatty?
1: Well, uh, Sir Stephen, or Sir Stephen Herbert Gatti was the Chief Justice of Gibraltar. Uh, interestingly enough, and he was the son of a children's author, Margaret Scott uh, Gatty, who herself was the daughter of Admiral Lord Nelson's confidential secretary and chaplain, the Doctor Scott, and um, his daughter uh, Hester went on to marry the poet Siegfried Sassoon, and at their wedding, the best man was none other than Lawrence of Arabia, Uh, hence your reference to adventurers at the start. So a a colourful cast, but you might, I suppose, ask, how was it that uh, uh, Gatti and Maclean uh, came to blows? And the answer to that was apparently Sir Stephen's wife who was of the Morrison clan and she knew Kenneth McLean uh, and that led to the tragic circumstances that we're about to discuss.
0: Okay. So uh, let's get more into that then. Why did McLean borrow the money? Uh, It was just under 40,000, I believe, which would have been a kind of huge sum of money at the time. Uh, We've heard that he'd fallen on hard times. We don't, maybe his music hall singing wasn't quite bringing in the the money he would have liked. Uh, So what do we know about why he borrowed the money and then what happened next?
1: Well, it would appear that um, it was his father. His father had been rather better at spending money than making money and when Kenneth McLean inherited the estate in 1909 it was badly in debt and he needed to do something to try and pay that debt off and he took to the stage apparently to try and do that, but he needed someone to borrow the money from, and he went and apparently spoke to uh, Miss Morrison, who ultimately married uh, Stephen Gatty, and Sir Stephen lent the money uh, to Kenneth McLean um, to, I suppose, pay off father's debts. But in return for that, um, Sir Stephen Gatty took a lease over the estate of the family, um, and that estate extended to, I think, 22,000 acres. And um, the rent from the estate went to pay or service the loan that uh, Sir Stephen Gatty uh, had lent McLean. So no money was really changing hands at that stage. Uh, and that all seemed to work quite well up until after the end of the First World War or thereabouts or near the end of the, the, the First World War.
0: Okay, uh, and uh, I mean, first of all, Tony, just under forty thousand pounds. What are we? What are we talking about? I know these things are a little bit of a straw in the wind, but what are we talking about in modern day money? Into the into the over a million.
1: Well, the, you're talking about there were two loans, and the the total amount of today's money would be somewhere approaching one and a half million pounds. Uh, but in in real terms, back in those days, it was an immense amount of money um, for uh, Young McLean to try and pay back.
0: And so then what do we know about when young McLean went off on on his on his military service you mentioned earlier on a military cross what do, what do we know about that?
1: Well um, we know that his career on the stage was interrupted uh, in about 1914 and uh, I suppose like most people back then he volunteered for service and he saw service on the Western front uh, and was awarded a military cross. Uh, but he came from a family where uh, military service, gone back hundreds of years hence why they got the castle at the end of the day um uh, and indeed um uh, it continued on from there because his son went on to serve at arnhem with the glider pilot regiment so uh, it, a family with a great deal of history in the in the military
0: Okay. And what do we know about uh, which point Brody's or or John C. Brody and Sons WS, as it was at the time, kind of come into the case? Uh, and who did they come in for? And where particularly did the point of conflict arise? Where did the trouble start?
1: Well, um John C. Brodie and Sons um, uh, came in for the winning side for uh, Sir Stephen Gatti. We don't know how they teamed up with Sir Stephen Gatti, how he ended up um, being represented by uh, Brodie's, but then it was a, a very well-established firm uh, having been set up in the uh, 1800s. Yeah, and, and
0: uh, so when when Brodie's come into the case, what's what's actually happening with the case? Where did the uh, where did the conflict arise? When did the loan stop being repaid?
1: The problem began when uh, in approximately 1917, um, the young MacLean couldn't pay the interest on the loan. Now, you'll remember that I said that originally the arrangement was that the rent of the estate covered the loan. Uh, but that arrangement came to an end when um Sir Stephen Gattie gave up the, the lease. Now, we don't know why he gave up the lease, because it's not recorded in the case report, but uh, we know that uh, Sir Stephen died in 1922, and it may be that by 1917, he didn't want to live uh, up in the Highlands uh, anymore. Um So, Uh, Kenneth McLean had to find the money um, and it was about £250 every time you had to pay um, uh, a proportion of the interest. And he he didn't do it on time. Uh, And he didn't do it on time on a couple of occasions. And Parties, when they had entered into the agreement, had specified a particular rate of interest that had to be paid, and and it was specified that it had to be punctually paid. And um, when uh, Kenneth McLean missed the interest payments, there was a back letter, a letter granted after the the loan that said, if you um, pay on time, you get to pay a lower rate of interest than you would have to pay. Uh, and the issue here was um, whether uh, they could demand payment of a higher rate of interest, uh, and also um, whether or not um, uh, they had uh, Gatti had barred himself um from saying that. He could insist on that higher rate and hold uh, Kenneth McLean to task or to account for having paid late because if he paid late, then they could call up the whole loan uh, and they could uh, take the property away from him. Okay. so so so
0: Ross, what was the you know what was the outcome uh, of the case? Tony's given us a little spoiler yep. there that Gatti won, but um you know on uh, when was the decision finally made uh, and on yep. which points of law did it rest?
2: Yeah, I mean, so the case makes its way eventually to the House of Lords um, with the decision um, coming out in 1921. Uh, and as Tony pointed out, the stakes for the McLean family were really high by the time this case gets to the House of Lords. And, you know, un- fairly unusually, the, the court sort of expressed uh, a recognition of, of of how high the stakes were. Um, Viscount Finlay, for example, uh, at the start of his speech points out that He's come to the conclusion that although there is great hardship in enforcing the strict rights of the parties in this case, it's better that these rights should be enforced, even though there is hardship in the individual case, um, than that the principle should be uh, trenched upon. Um, So the House of Lords are also recognising just how how high the stakes are here, but as Tony points out, that that wasn't enough to ignore the, the legal principles in play here.
0: Okay, and what about this phrase, punctually paid? Uh, you know what do we know about why why is that such an such an important sort of use of words?
2: Yeah, so McLean was running, attempting to run two arguments in this case, and and he lost on both points. And as you point out, David, the first one was all to do with the word punctually and how that ought to be interpreted by the court, um, and and essentially what McLean was trying to argue in in relation to the word punctually was that um if 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 in a contract where payment is due on a specific date, you add the word "punctually," um, what McLean essentially tried to argue was that even if you were a few days after the the date specified in the contract, then the payment wasn't late because it was still punctually uh, made. And when I started reading this case, I thought there's no there's no chance this argument's got any shot of success um, and so I was quite pleased that fairly early on the Lord Chancellor clearly also thought thought this and and he expressed um, the suggestion that the cautious insertion of the word punctually is actually to be treated as importing an element of unpunctuality seems to me a paradox which only great courage could propose. So um, <laughs> but clearly he's, he's recognising the courage of uh, Maclean's counsel in this case and what the court did ultimately decide is that um, in saying that payment must be made punctually on a certain date, unsurprisingly enough, it means that payment has to be made on that date for it to be made uh, timeously. And the Lord Chancellor did go on to point out that if you were to find otherwise, you would create this fairly ridiculous situation uh, in that if you are, say, for example, saying payment is due on wednesday and you say nothing else there's no doubt that the payment is to be due on wednesday but if you add the word punctually payment is to be due is to be made punctually on wednesday the creditor is putting themselves in a worse situation by adding the word punctually than if they just said payment on wednesday which is clearly not what the word punctually is intended to do in this contract
0: okay and and you said that mclean had argued two particular points what was the second one
2: Yeah, so the second one is probably the more interesting point for uh, today's purposes and and how this case continues to apply, but what it was uh, was that Gatti, the the pursuer in this case, was personally barred from seeking payment at the high rate of interest. So personal bar is also sometimes referred to as uh, estoppel, for example, in in English law. And it basically means that because of the way that you've conducted yourself um, or communicated certain things, you're prevented from from acting in in a certain way in the future. So what McLean argued in this case was that because Gatti had previously, uh, when payment was late, sent a letter saying please make payment now at the lower interest rate and accepted a late payment um, at the lower rate of interest rather than strictly insisting on 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 the higher rate of interest. That meant that uh, on the next occasion when a similar set of circumstances occur, i.e. McLean has paid late, McLean was arguing "Well, because Gathy had essentially accepted a lower rate of payment uh, on a previous occasion um, and, and sent that letter saying please make payment again in future, he was basically prevented from insisting on strictly what the terms of the contract said in future because he'd forgiven a prior breach, basically. Uh, and so, what, what, Vi- the court didn't agree with McLean on that point. Um, and Viscount Finlay said that under these circumstances, it appears to me that there is no ground whatever, for alleging that there was any course of dealing which would modify the contract or that the defenders were in any way misled by the actings of the creditors into not paying with punctuality. So in this case, sending a single letter after a mispayment saying, um, please make payment again um, at the lower rate and accepting that didn't mean that the strict terms of the contract couldn't be enforced uh, in the future by by Mr Gatty.
0: Okay, so it's a it's a it's a two 0 defeat for McLean at the moment, and and what what about the fact that McLean was overseas, Tony? Uh, was that raised as an issue in this case in terms of him not being able to repay uh, the debt?
1: There was an attempt, um, in the, the case note indicates that because he was serving abroad in the army, um, in 1917, um, uh, that he was entitled to plead a piece of legislation called the Courts Emergency Powers Act of 1917, section three. But that argument really wasn't insisted upon in the House of Lords. And as Ross has indicated, um, given that um, extreme courage was apparently required to advance the argument about punctuality, um, it perhaps um, was seen as senior counsel as complete suicide um, to advance the argument under the emergency powers legislation. So although it was mentioned, it wasn't really pushed Okay,
0: and what what do we know about what happened to the to the parties next after after the case was decided?
1: Well, uh, that's interesting in itself because um, there's the story about what happened. So Stephen Gatti uh, died in, in 1922. So presumably um, they got their money from the sale of the estate, uh, and uh, McLean himself died in 1935. The current um, Chief of the Clan Maclean. I understand is based in South Africa. I don't know the family history. Um, uh, the Maclean clan still looks at Castle Moy as being the, the seat of the, the clan. Uh, but interestingly in 1922 um, the estate uh, was um, purchased by uh, the Corbett family um, who uh, appear to have made um, their fortunes in brewing um, in England uh, and is still owned by um, one of the, the Corbett's to this day. Uh, but they, the story has an interesting uh, twist in that um, Hester, the, the daughter of um, Sir Stephen Gatty, who knew the estate because she had grown up there, uh, when she separated um, from Siegfried Sassoon. Um she apparently went back um, to to the island to, to live out her days there. And in fact, um, the Corbett's appeared to have sold her a cottage there in which she could she could live. So clearly um, there's a draw there to take people back.
0: There's definitely a period drama in all of this.
1: There really is a TV drama to be made to be made out of all these colourful characters, I think. David, you're absolutely right. And uh the one that springs to mind is Downton Abbey, because of course Downton Abbey is set exactly within that period. And um a number of the things that feature in this case, you know, um, money troubles and, uh, that are common. Uh, but all of this case, I mean, it's heard in November of 1920, um, by which point, um, the Spanish flu pandemic has been raging through the, the population. Uh, and here we are in, um, November 2021, um, 101 years later, um, dealing with something that, <laughs> It's largely similar.
0: Yeah, well, history very much repeats itself. So, so Ross, um, how has this case, how has Gatti versus McLean, sort of resonated? Uh, you know, a hundred years through history, and uh, how has it influenced more recent cases?
2: Yeah, I mean, the case is well known, and and that's largely because uh, of of what it says about the concept of of personal bar, as I mentioned, the stuff in, in English law, and. Um, and that came from the speech of the Lord Chancellor, um, who said, and, and I'll cite it here because it's uh, it's such a clear enunciation of the law. Uh, the learned council cited various authorities in which these doctrines have been discussed, but the rule of estoppel or bar, as I have always understood it, is capable of extremely simple statement, where A has by his words or conduct justified B in believing that a certain state of facts exists, and B has acted upon such belief to his prejudice A is not permitted to affirm against B that different state of facts existed at the same time. So it's a really great example of succinctly explaining a legal concept that um, could very easily be explained in 10 times as many words. And and often what gives a judgment uh, real longevity of life in this case is, is not because it's necessarily an overturning of precedent or a new statement of legal principle, but because it takes a concept from multiple different sources uh, and explains it in a clear and understandable way, which which makes it easier to deploy in, in the future. And that continues to be the case um with this particular case. So, for example, it it continues to be cited today uh, numerous times every year. For example, last year, uh, even just last year, it was cited by Lord Tyre in the commercial court um, in the case HCC International Insurance against the Scottish ministers, which is all to do with the building and and financing of of Calmac ferries. So it continues to be applied um, in, in cases today.
0: Uh, for those of you who haven't listened to episode one of the case files yet, then uh, we, we we've got a shipbuilder uh, going all the way back, sort of deep into the 19th century, and then bringing us right up to date in episode two with the case that Ross has mentioned with the, with building ships uh, in in the 2020s. So a clear connection there and. Just to, just to wrap up now, uh, Tony. You know uh, we we talked there about some of McLean's arguments requiring great courage. You know, if a, if a similar case like this came up today, uh, you know, do you think do you think McLean might argue things in a in a, in a slightly different way, uh, or do you think he'd have to have courage to uh, to have any chance of winning this case?
1: I think undoubtedly it would be argued in a, a different way, but that's, of course, because we have the benefit of um, uh, the Lord Chancellor Birkenhead's uh, clear guidance on what the law um, is. Um, and incidentally, Birkenhead um, was Winston Churchill's best friend, apparently, so we can see, and only 48 years old. Um, so when you look at the legal landscape now, um... Yes, it would be argued quite differently, although it's pretty hard to see what he could have done um, uh, under the way in which the law existed to avoid the outcome here. It was pretty clear what was going to happen.
0: Okay, thank you very much, Tony, and thank you very much to Ross too uh, for some uh, amazing insights there and a, an incredible kind of cast of characters uh, in in this uh, story, which is very often is the case, revolves uh, around somebody being feckless with money. Um, where would lawyers be without people being feckless with money? There's a, a good question there. Uh, you've been listening today to a podcast by Brodies, uh, where some of the country's leading lawyers uh, share their enlightened thinking about issues and developments impacting on the legal sector and what that might mean for organizations, businesses and individuals across the UK. Uh, if you'd like to hear more, you can listen to all six episodes of The Case Files and much more by subscribing to Podcasts by Brodies on all your main podcast platforms. And for more information and insights, please visit www.brodies.com. <laughs>